Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Gateway Rescue Mission, meeting the physical and spiritual needs of the homeless right here in Jackson, Mississippi. Check us out at www.gatewaymission.org. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then moved my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the stories straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes, baby. In a Mississippi minute. That's right. Okay, today it's pretty simple. By the way, you're coming from the Keep Mississippi Beautiful Studios. That's what I'm talking about. I'm Steve Azar. I'm excited about today. When I arrived in Nashville, if you could get today's guest to produce or play on your record, it was a grand slam. He's the original member of the famed Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. He played on over 1,000 number one records. I mean, I don't even know how it's possible. He produced the likes of Neil Young and countless other mus- musical icons, including spending a whole lot of time with our very own Elvis Presley in the studio, making records, a lot of hit records, and on the road sharing the stage. We will delve into that as we get through the show. And yes, finally, after moving back home, finally, he made the trek to the Mississippi Delta and brought all that soul and talent to my Steve Azar and the Kingsmen record project and feature documentary associated with called Something in the Water, which is out on Quello or Go USA. You can check it out. That's a cheap plug, I know, but I'm taking advantage. So let's get to it and welcome in my pal, the legendary, one-of-a-kind, David Briggs. Hey, Davo. Hey, Steve. What's going on down there? Well, you know, it's ever since you left and left, left your tooth behind, it's not the same. She's not the oh, same. Oh, yeah, well, I have, a, I have a new tooth now. The cameraman would never shoot me today. <laughs> they only want you when something's wrong yeah. with you. <laughs> you look charming as always. Oh, yeah, I saw a little bit of that um, tooth missing segment. It was real great. All right, so we'll talk about that in a little while. But I do want to talk about what you're doing right now. Then I want to go back and, and dive into your past and how it all got started and all that. But uh, right now, you're the National Musicians Hall of Fame. Uh, you you guys are being inducted. The Muscle Shoals uh, rit- rhythm section that did so many wonders for the world of music influenced the world. Uh, what's going on with that? Yeah, this is uh, just an induction for the original, the first Muscle Shoals Hall of Fame that really started everything, cut the first hit records there. Uh, we, there was uh, myself, Norbert Putnam, Peanut Montgomery, uh, Terry Thompson, who was the best musician of all, and he he died years ago at the age of about 21 or 2. He had an overdose, I think. And Jerry Kerrigan, of course. And then uh, we had our friends who would come when Terry couldn't play or was uh, ill or he had some problems in the latter part of his life. We had Reggie Young to come in and also uh, 
Joe South from Atlanta, uh-huh. who played guitar, especially. When we did the Thames, we did uh, some of the records we did there were You Better Move On, which was the first hit ever cut in Alabama, ever cut in Muscle Shows. That was the beginning of the Muscle Shows rhythm section. Wow. Beginning of all the success at Rick Hall's Fame Studio, but it actually started in Florence, Alabama. Fame stands for Florence, Alabama Music Enterprises. It has nothing to do with Muscle Shows, but he moved over to Muscle Shows and managed to negotiate the name Fame, which was originated by Billy Sherrill, the great producer, you know, who later became right. an interesting uh, country producer, which was sort of strange because he was rock and roll. When yeah. I was down there, I played in the band with him and uh, Rick. Some they didn't really have a keyboard player, but Billy Sherrill could play keyboards, and he liked to play sax and sing. So when he wanted to sing and play parts, they would hire me to play piano. And uh, it's interesting that he ended up becoming, you know, the like music producer of the year for country music several years. Right. And Rick was a fiddle player who played bluegrass and a little bit of fiddle and not much of a musician he ended up becoming the rock and roll producer of the year wow and later it's kind of strange because they both went into fields that they didn't like that much right we're talking to david briggs david so tell me you you talk about that you know back back in the day right You'd have crossover hits. Now, I know the word crossover. A lot of people go, oh, that was on country radio. Now it's on pop or now it's on whatever. But but back then, your artists to me seemed to be also different. And I mean, you went you go from Mac Davis, who who's who was, you know, who had a country thing. Charlie Rich. I think about people like that who really were everything musical and you coucouldn't really define it, although you put them in a category. Weren't artists back then? just a little bit unique enough to just sort of be themselves and let it fall where it fall. And if it fell in a couple of genres, fine. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. You, you know, Arthur Alexander, he was responsible for most of the beginning of, of our success because as I said, you better move on. It's the first right. hit cut there. And he was a great writer. We had had things. I was involved in that publishing company a little bit later on. They gave me a third of it just for the, work I did around the studio, and I helped him write some tunes, although I didn't get any credits for him. And before he died, he said, you know, I think you probably deserve half of some of these songs, but, you know, we both worked for crooks, and uh, we all got cheated. <laughs> he was right. So anyway, he wrote uh, uh, the Steve Alamo thing, what was it, uh, Every Day I Have to Cross Some, mm-hmm. was a hit. And then, of course, the Beatles, got, we had four or five cuts by the Beatles that Arthur Alexander wrote. There's somewhere on the B, uh, on some of the uh, specials that they did on radio and not for a label, although some of them later came out. The Rolling Stones cut Anna, too, I think. And Rolling Stones cut You Better Move On, as did the Beatles. But the Beatles had, um, Anna was on their first EP, and it sold millions of records. Of course, my grand total out of that was about (laughs) $3,000. I'll tell you, something's wrong. (laughs) And things like that, you know. But Arthur Alexander started for us, and he was different, sort of unique. He wasn't a great singer, but you ask on me, you know, he had that little little sound to him, and people loved him. And later on, he wrote a lot of hits. You know, It's a Shame If You Don't Share Your Love With Me by Bobby Bluebell was one of my favorite ones that he wrote, and we demoed that down there originally. But uh, other things we cut that were good, like What Kind of Food Do You Think I Am, The Thames, and You Live. Towns, what kind of food was number one? Of course, Tommy Rowe. Atlanta was what helped 
built us, you know, Bill Lowry sent a lot of his people down there, Ray Stevens, Felton Jarvis, who later produced Elvis, produced uh, the Tams, and he produced Tommy Rome. We cut number one records on all of them. You know, you, you talk about the first hit, right? How, you know, wh- how old were you back then, David? Do you remember? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. When we did that, I was already pretty old. I'd been playing off and on uh, radio stations and little terrible bands, all that from the time I was 12, 13 years old, and recording in radio stations. We didn't have a real studio except uh, a guy named James Joyner who wrote A Fallen Star, really was the first one down there to have a any success out of Florence, Alabama, and he wrote A Fallen Star, and Jimmy Newman came down to cut it, and by then I was, I still couldn't drive, but Jimmy Newman cut that <laughs> particular hit here, but he came back to Florence to cut another side, and, and it probably just ended up a demo, who knows, but it was the most professional thing I'd ever had other than working in radio stations, and by then I was, I guess I was 15 by then, or between 14 and 15, I couldn't drive still, had somebody to take me to the studio. <laughs> but that's where I met Pina Montgomery, who actually is the one who took me over to uh, the so-called fame, which was a block away, just opened up, and that was Rick Hall, Tom Stafford, and Billy Sherrill who owned that. And Pina Montgomery said, we don't have a piano player over there. Sometimes Pig would come down and play on one or two with them if they cut little things on a Burlap recorder or a Roberts recorder. That We thought that was professional back then. And... Uh, He's really the one that got me introduced to fame, and I went over there and met all the people. And about a year later, I got Norbert involved over there because he and I played a little rock and roll band together called the Rhythm Rockets and, you know, just little local things. But that's how I got into James is all the little local bands uh, were mostly guitars, bass, and drums. They didn't have keyboards, and I would get hired just to sit in with them. <clears throat> you know, they had a little uh, keyboard sound back in those days. Wow. And that's how James Joyner heard me, and he offered me $5 an hour. And I said, oh, God, yeah, because, <laughs> you know, that's I was still a little teenager, and the, the top master electricians made $5 an hour back then. See, this yeah. is the 50s. This is the late 50s. Oh, yeah, you go, be, probably 58 go buy a car with that. At the end of the day, you go buy your oh, car. Oh, the average salary was <laughs> about $100 a week major if you're a college graduate then. Wow. Just, you, know, you know, you think about what happened in that era do you ever sort of look back and go was it impossible i mean like i mean because what you guys achieved musically the world came to you it ended up coming to you you're talking about being 12 and 15 i love how you said you were old already i love that yeah uh, well i was already old if you get old enough to drive you were considered <laughs> old then to yourself at least and you could drive yourself it's embarrassing to have your mother bring you to a recording yeah. session oh, yeah. Yeah, I had guess. to ride with somebody, and Norbert was a little older than me. He would pick me up a lot when we played bands together because he was, uh, I don't know, about eight months old. I don't know, six to eight months older than me. So I had a little period there when I had to ride with him everywhere to meet the bands. And our lead singer had a car. He would drive and take us when we went. Had a big acoustic bass in the center and all of us sitting wherever we could in a little Chevrolet. Wow. I'm trying to picture... The talent in in one spot, in one little, this small little crevice in the world, that you guys all came together and, and made all this magic. And we're gonna we're gonna dive a lot further into it. I'm with the great David Briggs, my pal. You're in the Keep Mississippi Beautiful Studios. You're in Mississippi Minute. We're gonna roll on by. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. 
right, I'm Steve Azar. Keep this would be beautiful. I'm in that studio. We got to keep doing that. Alabama as well. I know David. Tennessee, all Louisiana. We got to keep it from uh, getting all trashy. Got to keep it clean. All right, David. So I, I still am trying to figure out in my head at such a young age. I mean, I mean, at what point did your mom and dad just look at you and go, you know, this is pretty special. I mean, were they were they all in too as as parents with what did they notice it and 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 try to nurture it? Well, my my mother did more or less. My dad thought it was a waste of time, and uh, later on, when I I took a test, I think Norbert and I both did, and he ended up in the plant division. I got an office job with AT and T driving, had a car with a telephone, only because I was the only passed the test to got to. <laughs> so I took the job. <laughs> Just to prove to my dad I could get a job outside of music, but the problem was back then this was AT and T. I don't. That's a, a few years later I already started to college. I just took a leave of absence and did that job and did it for a while. But I was making more and maybe two nights playing in little bands that I made all week after taxes. Yeah. So I eventually took a leave of absence from that and went back to school for a while just because it didn't make any sense. I only did it to prove to my dad. I could make money, and you know, soon I was making more a week than he made. Yeah, no, no, no. And that's that's when they began to realize that when I began to bring in a little more money there. All right, so you're, what, are you college age at this point? You're 18, 19? Well, yeah, I finished, I jumped a grader or so, and I jumped, I was in, started college when I was 17. Okay, overachiever. You're overachieving everything. Yeah, well, I never, I didn't finish because, as I said, the top uh, salary back then, it was a hundred dollars a week, and I was already making more than that just playing little uh, sessions, you know, at night and playing fraternity parties and band shows on the weekend. So I, it made no sense, you know. Right, right. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, in my little world, and then in the, when I got graduated at Delta State, I mean, I had two hundred and something one nighters on the calendar. We had a bunch. We had trucks and all this, and we had a, we had acquired all this debt, so we had to go play. We were sort of stuck. Yeah. But uh, there's yeah. no way I w- I made three times in that year. That first year out of college that I'd have made being a lawyer, you know, so there That's was, right. was and, yeah, yeah, I it, mean, it was, it was just too hard to turn down. It wasn't. No, no, I was sort of stuck, which was kind of kept me going. But that's, you know, yeah. and here we are now. <laughs> I've been still, I know. still stuck. Funny. <laughs> well, we, you know, and back then, too, where I went to school, they didn't have no one did. They didn't have commercial music courses. All you could take as far as music, I was trying to major in music, and if I had stayed in school, and of course, all that was was theory and choir, and I was a singer, too. I had uh, several little record deals along the way, but that was... Right. It's almost like you're built for every song. Where did it come from? I mean, was it experience, or was it always there? Yeah, I think it was all experience, because I didn't... uh, I was really terrible. You can listen to some of those records we did and i i consider them pretty bad they want us to do something like we did uh for example the better move on is really a primitive record the first one we cut it's really terrible but you got to realize we had somebody who thought they knew what we should all play telling us what to do so i won't go into that yeah but then what kind of fool do you think i am that by the times was the first record we did i liked and then of course tommy Rowe, we did everybody and I like that. All those were done in 1963. You better move on, 62. Wow. And then we did a Jimmy Hughes number one, which I hated what I played on that. And, and if we do it on this uh, Hall of Fame show, I'm not going to play the same thing I play because I was playing busy 
a busy pattern that someone, I won't say who, insisted I play. <laughs> <laughs> and it was in the key of B natural, too, which didn't help. <laughs> but that was a number one record, too, Jimmy Hughes. And uh, wow. then we did several Roscoe Sheldon records with John R. and Hoss Allen. That was mostly me, because they used to bring uh, black bands there. Yeah. And they never had a piano, and so I got to play with them a lot that I would get later because I would clear it in the Union. And O.B. McClinton, before he came up to Nashville and went country, we cut a hit with him with our original group called Trading Stamps. Then I worked with Joe Simon once, and I did a Conway Tweedy rock and roll record just before I left. Of course, Ray Stevens cut Mr. Baker, The Undertaker, when he was hot there, and Dickie Lee cut a few things. I love Dickie. Dickie Lee was the yeah. best. All right, dig dig back to Rick Hall because you know, as a kid, I'm growing up and I'm I'm hearing like, like he if I walked into the studio, although I was I was way more cocky than I was competent, not cocky than I was good, you know, but but I wasn't <laughs> I afraid, know. you know. No, what I'm saying is that growing up, you know, I, I mean, know, just sort of like you got to be a little fearless because you're what you were you're dealing with. But I mean, he was sort of a guy that that sounded like. To me, was like, man, if you got in the room there, you had to bring in armor and all. I mean, like, he was tough, right? Yeah, he was in a way. And I think part of his was defense, too, because there he was. We're cutting 90% R&B music uh, other than Tommy Rowe, which is kind of Tenny Bopper, you know, rock and roll kind of stuff. Right. And he probably knew less about rock and roll than anybody in the entire town, much less in that band, because we all played in bands, and he played a little bit in that The Fairlands with Charlie Santa, Terry Thompson, and Billy Sherrill, the band that I would sit in with. But he was a country guy, and he loved country. Mm-hmm. And so that was that made him harder to deal with, because if he had an idea, he would just make you do it. But now, don't get me wrong, if not for him, we probably never would have uh, become successful and cut a hit, because he would not give up just trial and error, so we'd end up cutting for days to do something that we do here in Nashville in 15 minutes, you know. Right, right. And by the time you got to Nashville, and you, I guess it was like going through some sort of uh, musical boot camp, where you... Yeah, spent- that's right, it was, yeah. although it was a crude one, and I thought I was more ready for Nashville than I was, because Owen Bradley is the reason I came up here, Owen Bradley signed me. I'd had a Dan Penn, I wrote a sort of a hit song for Brenda Lee in 1960. One, I guess, or 62, we wrote it. It came out on her, I think, probably in 63. And it went, the problem was it was a double-sided hit, as so many people, including her, had in those days, and they cut it, split the place. So it only went to 10 with a bullet, and then it started going down. But it was a pop and country hit called My Dreams. And I went back to pitch another song to him and, and I couldn't get the girl singer Jenny Johnson who later sang with the Holiday Sisters mm-hmm. to demo it for me and so I just sang myself I was in a hurry a song called Imagine that Tom Stafford had given to me the lyrics and I put music to it for him and uh, I don't know I like the title of course it wasn't near as good as John Lennon's yeah. <laughs> 20 years later or 10 years later whatever <laughs> But at least it was first. And I played the song to Owen Bradley, and he didn't like it. He said, well, I don't think it's finished. I like the title. He said, but I like that boy. Who is that? I said, what boy? And it was me singing. He said, is that you? I said, yeah. He said, you sing? I said, well, not really. I'd already cut one record with Kelso Hurston up here in Nashville, but I'd never even cut one down in my show. So he auditioned, had myself and Wayne Carson, which is where I met Wayne and Wayne. As you know, was a great singer and an incredible writer. Right. I didn't know how good he was, but we had about 50 of us there for the audition. We started at 
9.30 in the morning, and he didn't even call either one of us until 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Everybody else was gone. And he said, just come on up here, both of you. And we got up there. He said, I don't want you to play. I don't want you to sing. I've already made up my mind. I'm signing both of you. Wow. And he signed both of us to DECA, you know. Yeah. And then Wayne and I kind of became friends from that little thing because we were looking at each other like, well, he's going to keep me from getting the deal. And yeah. if I'd known how good Wayne was, I, I knew I would have known darn well he would have kept me from getting it. Well, well let me ask but you something. We did, neither one of us had a hit. I got in the pop charts, but that's about it. And so I didn't. I just took it all as just an extra way to make money and thought if something happened, it could. But it opened my eyes to Nashville. Then when I recorded with Owen Bradley in the Quonset Hut, Studio B, which he had built, it was like going to heaven. You know, we didn't have headphones and muscle shows. It was just mono. And up here they had three and four track there by then. And they had headphones and great engineers. It was just like a whole new world. And I, when I experienced cutting my own record, I knew I would end up here. And Owen told me, he said, yeah, you need to get out of there because I wasn't getting paid. Uh, right. Probably 30 signs recorded, and I have a check I still have today. I'm looking at it right now, hanging up under my lot here at my desk for uh, 58 cents. <laughs> that's that's for 30 songs I wrote for <laughs> Fame's publishing company, okay? Come on. I mean. Uh, I got it right here. I got the original at home locked up in a hey listen but, uh, don't lock that up listen there's this whatever music reports is i get these checks we get them in the mail with a stamp now stamps I get those are, right for one dollar penny and, dollar do, yeah right i've got i got another thing up here for a penny from somebody i you know it's the crazy <laughs> i get those it's insane i got a big one this week i got a 20 dollar one for music reports <laughs> i'm surprised and wow. i did get one for 200 dollars i was shocked over that but they don't tell you what anything is you've got to go to the website and research it they don't I don't understand that. Today, everything has changed. You get all these uh, statements and checks, but there's no statement that tells you even what song it was or whose version of it. Look, I know every penny counts, but just FYI, I'm not researching a penny. It ain't happening. Or 12 cents yeah, or whatever. Absolutely. It's crazy. With, with David Briggs. David, a legendary David Briggs. I know, I know you don't love hearing that, but it's a fact. You get to play DJ right now. You know, we're the birthplace of American music. I know what you did over across the state line. I know the magic that was made, but I know you also love Mississippi musicians. So would you like to hear, because we're going to talk about it, Elvis or Mississippi John Hurt? Yes, anything you want to play. All right, okay. I'm only going to let you get away with that. You're the first one. I'm going to go Mississippi John Hurt to throw a curveball with David Briggs. You're in the Keep Mississippi Beautiful Studios. Right. My father in the that lonesome valley. He had to walk his bracelet. There's nobody here can walk it for him. He had to walk. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. I'm Steve Azar, keeping Mississippi beautiful in that studio. I'm with David Briggs, legendary keyboard piano, B3. I want to talk about your B3 plan because I, I'm blown away by it. Just the the magic, how, how the melody... Um, just, it's amazing. So, 
we could we could name everybody that was ever popular uh and you're probably on that record L- tell me the beatles back up a little bit and take me back i mean were they in the studio with you guys in muscle shows what was going on how'd you guys no no they've never been in the studio the only reason they they kind of asked for us because of tommy Rowe. i think tommy had used the beatles uh when before they were hot you know and he was a big deal in europe he used them as his backup band and got them on a couple of european tours with him and then they heard his records and he heard their songs in fact he brought some of them to muscle shows not the beatles but their songs and we cut i think i want to hold your hand and some of the others i didn't like any of them i thought they were terrible but thomas said oh you're all wrong they're going to be huge <laughs> and he he and felton went to uh Larry Newton's office, who was president of ABC in New York, and I happened to be with him because we were playing in New York with Tom, and he said, go with us, man. And so I went with him, and Larry Newton had listened to all their things, and he said, I don't know. Uh, I don't really I don't really get them, and I don't know why he asked me. <laughs> he said, well, what do, what's your name, David? I said, yeah. He said, well, what do you think? I said, well, I don't like them either. I don't think <laughs> I said, I don't, I don't like any of their songs, because I'd only heard the real weak ones. Come on, you know, I want to hold your hand yeah, and all that kind of stuff. There was not much to them, song-wise, because I'd been writing with Dan Penn. I was his uh, writing partner till I moved up here, and, you know, we like to think that we wrote some deep songs. We probably right. didn't, but you know what yeah. I mean. No, and no. so he said, yeah, i, I got to go along with David. I agree, and I said, oh, my God. No, Ben Felton was mad at me. Tommy <laughs> Rowe was mad at me. The Beatles <laughs> didn't get a deal with ABC. Oh, and they ended up having to go to that Steve, uh, what's his name's label, the first one that went, that, that uh, You Got Me Running, Got Me Hiding, Jimmy was on. Yeah. That's uh, uh, the R&B label. And they went to that label, and the label went bankrupt, pressing up. They sold so many records, so then they had to go to another one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's funny, and they might. But so anyway, to get back to what your question was, they heard had heard Arthur Alexander, and they were big fans of his when they cut Anna, you know, on their first EP. And then they cut You Better Move On. They cut uh, three more. I don't know which ones they were now, because since I didn't get paid for them, anyway, I didn't care. You know, at that point, but they kind of were familiar with us from those records we had cut Muscle Shells because they were big R&B fans. And then, of course, Tommy talked about us a lot because we'd started playing some of his bigger shows, like right. their show, and they asked for us to be there for sure to back up everybody else. So we backed up everyone on the show, obviously, except the Beatles. Now, there's a video of me on stage with the Beatles while they're singing, but it's only because the cops wouldn't let me leave before they came out because he said nobody knows this was the first show they'd ever played other than Ed Sullivan, first live show. And he said, you can't get off stage since these girls will tear you apart. They don't know that you're not with the Beatles. <laughs> he said they don't hey, know what the Beatles look did like. You tell them, did you tell them that you, that you would like that? <laughs> no. <laughs> well... But they left me there, and, and so somebody, I know there's one video, Norbert Tuckcloff's on stage. I don't know if it's the one, because when they inducted me into this Nashville Cats, uh, their little Hall of Fame they have kind of for us, you know, they uh, played my introduction. I didn't know they were going to do it. They had one of Elvis's shows where he introduced me. He said, ladies and gentlemen, David Briggs, and people were clapping all shit. That's when I was playing a solo, really. <laughs> And then they showed the video of me on stage with the Beatles. You know, it's funny. I didn't know. I don't know where they got that. Might have got it from Norbert because I later gave him his copy of the the film. But I'm just sitting. I look like I'm asleep 
and the Beatles are singing some famous song. You can't. There's no audio. You know, back then it's just eight millimeter with no right, no That's sound. This is 1963 crazy. or four or whatever year that was. And, uh, All right, let me. Have you guys? Okay, so. I was glad to ask you about the possibility of somebody doing a documentary on your life. Uh, has anybody well, ever come to you about that? Oh, yeah. Somebody's trying to get me to do one right now. I'd like to watch uh, that. In fact, they were talking to Clint Eastwood about directing it because I played on some stuff for him. And uh, he went to sessions with me when he was here hanging out. That was back in 72 when he was a young guy. David, I think you got to do it. I mean, it'd be, I mean, it'd be well, forever ingrained. I mean, it, the, just the importance of, I mean, if you're not around, you could say, oh, somebody else would have, but, but that's not the case. I mean, Well, this guy, this guy, I can't remember his name, that's interested in being involved. He's filmed a lot of things. He's done a lot of really big super artists, done videos and things. And he, he wanted to try to come to this Hall of Fame thing we're doing. October 22nd and uh, film some backstage but I don't know I thought it might be too you know it's going to be crowded back there and, yeah. and everybody that you talk to and they're going to be a lot of friends of mine there you know a lot of big stars are right. going in too artists and stuff so you got to get permission from all of them everyone that's in the you know how it is in yeah, video yeah, yeah, you got to yeah. it would take hours to get on yeah. well that's their so responsibility them, you don't, don't have to worry about that I know but I tell them I think it'd be too confusing backstage you know, I don't so know. I don't I'm gonna. I'm gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. My vote is if my vote ever counted would be you got to do that. You got to do. You got to do it. Now let's move on to Elvis. Let's talk about that. Obviously, there's one story I wish you could tell, but I don't know if you could tell on the radio. But 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 take me. When did you meet Elvis? How did all that start? Well, the way I uh, got to first work with Elvis was uh, obviously I never met him, but the second year I was here, 19. I moved in December 64, just before New Year's of 65. And uh, in 66 of February, Felton had started, just started to produce Elvis. He, uh, and they hadn't hired him yet for Elvis, but I think he was still working for RCA at the time. And I was just taking Floyd Kramer's place. He called him and Mary Jarvis, who booked sessions for Chet Atkins. She had as much to do with it as anybody, I guess. And Felton later married her, but... She was a very powerful lady. She would come. She played piano, and she would come to sessions and listen. And if she liked the way you played, she'd put you on the list and get you work. And that's how I started getting a lot of RCA's work, which RCA turned out to be my big account. I had about 90% of all the sessions they did eventually that I was leader on. But anyway, they hired me to just to play till Floyd Kramer could get there. He was at the barn working with Bill Anderson or somebody with Owen Bradley, you know. So I went to the session, and I was nervous because I was, what, about 20 then or 21 or whatever. And uh, he usually came in late, Elvis later in later years. He might not come in until midnight, but that night he came in by 8 o'clock or so. And see, Floyd still wasn't there because I was thinking, this is great. Eh? I'm getting paid for a session. I get to work with my hero, Floyd Kramer, and, uh, and then get to meet Elvis and all this kind of stuff. Well, Elvis came in. And he said, well, I know we're supposed to do this gospel stuff tonight, and, and we'll get to it later. He said, I want to do this song right now. He was looking around, probably looking for Floyd Kramer, and they introduced me to him. And he said, okay, you know the song? And I said, he was really, really nice. You know, he sat out on the piano stool with me. And uh, I said, well, I've, I've heard it. We'll, we'll just play the uh, play the record. I guess we played Kitty, Kitty Lester's record, maybe. She had cut it just before that. And so he played I 
they played it for me, and Bob Moore and I wrote a little chart, and we sat down and we started doing it. And uh, Floyd came in about the time, and I thought, oh, great, I got, I just got up and went to Oregon and let Floyd come over. I said, Floyd said, well, what are we doing? I said, well, I'm doing love letters. I said, I got a little chart here. So he sat down and started playing a little bit of it. And they all said, hey, hey, whoa, hold on, Floyd. said, I got used to the way that boy was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> that really scared me to death. Now, here's Floyd Graham, was probably the number one session player in the world at the time. And he told him to get up and let me come back and play. And he said, you go play Oregon. Uh, then I was really scared. Yeah, wow. And Elvis had him turn all the lights off. And he said, move the piano out here. It was over in the corner at RCAB. He said, move it right in front of him. And they moved it back there. And the only light in the house almost was a candle. He had little light he had so he could see the lyrics in front of him. So he looked like God over there. You could just see his face. He was watching me, <laughs> looking right at me. I was head on right in front of him. Wow. So that was a little scary, but we cut it. And, uh, you know, he liked to cut. We only cut it a couple times. And Floyd didn't care. He could care less. He played on thousands and thousands of hit records. And uh, what, what did he care, you know? Right. Exactly. So I was nervous. So, But then eventually for the gospel stuff, then I went back to the organ and played. And Floyd played on some of the gospel stuff. And Henry Slaughter actually played piano on uh, uh, the How Great They Are, but I played organ and stuff. There's so much stuff on you got about 30 voices, you can't really hear it anyway. But I played on most of that album. We did the rest of it almost all that night. That's the first time I met him, and then he started calling me, asking me for a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more. Pretty soon I was doing the majority of it, you know. Did you become his band leader on the road? No, he, James Burton had already been his band oh, right, right, when they right. first started playing. and uh, But I could do what I wanted to. I was the only one that wasn't working for him or wasn't, you know, on a permanent job. The rest of them had signed a deal to play with him all the time. And so I got away with a lot of stuff because I didn't really work for him. I was free and independent. And he wrote personal checks to me, and the rest of them got their checks through the wow, car. So nobody could fire me except Elvis. That was so it. that's why I did so many silly things on stage, playing jokes and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And he, and he kind of liked it because everybody else was afraid, you know, sort of afraid of him. They afraid he'd fire him or something, you know. And, that, and you know me, I didn't care. I wasn't, I wasn't worried. I was having a good time, and he did too. And I pulled all kinds of jokes out of him. Tell a lot of them. With David Briggs, you're in the Keep Mississippi Beautiful Studios. We'll be right back. When I can In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. David Briggs, legendary keyboard piano, B3. Can you tell me why you got the, you, you finally had to go? Can you tell that story? Can we tell that story on radio? I probably can't tell the reason that I really left, but... <laughs> I had one thing that happened when we were playing Lake Tahoe. I was always doing funny stuff like once I, we had a bell of hay on stage for some reason. I don't know why. And I got J.D. Summers' vest and pulled off my pants and my shirt and everything. Just put on the vest, vest back there on stage. 
and he he couldn't see any of us until he came around to interview us or to let us introduce us let us play a solo and he looked back saw me there when the lights hit me i was sitting back there with one of jd's vest on it's got diamonds and sparkle stuff all over just laying back there on the bell hay and he almost died laughing <laughs> he couldn't believe it that's one thing i did i made it real short and another thing i did i rolled up my pants legs in lake tahoe up above my knee and i uh, got this big sausage and laid it up on the the piano, you know. <laughs> well, I laid on. it up was on it, the keyboard. Was it a pickled sausage? What was it? No, that, no, that it was a thing? big, long, big, long salami piece looking <laughs> thing that came from the kitchen. I got it, brought it in. And so when he came over again, he couldn't see me. He got right over me and said, Let us do it. He looked and he said, God, <laughs> he jumped. And I threw this sausage off at him and he was laughing and he, it was like a movie i couldn't have planned it i don't know how it worked but it just rolled towards him and he was running backwards <laughs> to get away from it and that was kind of funny too you know oh. everybody else looked scared to death and he, he thought it was funny that's just he said you're crazy you're crazy now hey what was he was he you guys had a great relationship did y'all go do the the peanut butter and banana sandwiches together uh you know no i didn't I mean, I was at his house several times, you know, usually tied with working, and he always would want you to, you know, he hung out in the bedroom most of the time. He was usually up there eating and listening to records. He'd say, well, let's go up here. I was supposed to record with him once after we did uh, Danny Boy, and I'd played on that just piano. He wanted to do it with just me. And he decided he'd do a whole album of nothing but he and I. This is just before he died. And uh, he, we'd never cut a song. He'd say every night, he'd say, well, let's come up here and listen to songs. We'd go listening. Then he'd start playing records. And he loved Kerrigan's drumming and his cymbals. So he'd play. We did a two or three cuts of What I Say. He cut that song all the time. He loved it. And Jerry's playing drums. So he'd play that thing ten times. He liked to just play records. Say, listen yeah. to this part. Listen to that. You know, he picked out parts everybody's doing. Wow. He was. He noticed everything he did and everything every musician did on his record. And if he liked it, he loved to play it back and call it out to you. You know. Oh, that's so cool. But we didn't ever cut a note when we went down there. I'd already written charts for twelve sides he picked out, and we didn't play one note. I stayed there almost a week, and I just left and came back to Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> I knew we were doing nothing but listening to records, <laughs> and I wasn't getting paid anyway for doing that. You know, you got to come through. Get a contract to get paid. Yeah. The union. yeah, you guys are just hanging out. Well, that's that's your fault for being such a, a guy you want to hang out with. You know? Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, yeah. who who wouldn't want to hang out with him? He's a great guy. I'm talking know. about hanging well, out with you. <laughs> you oh, well, you caused that issue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you could have been well, a distraction was, for Elvis. You know, just kind of a lot of fun together. You know? Yeah, I think he liked me because I cut up, I guess, and because I, I got away with all the stuff that everybody else was afraid that. <laughs> do and say i was always saying crazy stuff yeah yeah unbelievable well hey, i'm gonna leave you with that i know you got a busy schedule and, and congratulations on the national music hall of fame i know you guys uh and look i love watching when you're sitting at that piano and and it looks like the most natural thing i've ever seen in my entire life and you just like old people man I do like old people. You're right. You're right. But yeah, you're not that old. You 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 look like you, you look. When I'm talking to you, I still feel like you're a kid. So it's like uh, yeah, it keeps us young. But listen, you're the best pal, and congratulations. And I appreciate you giving me the time. I don't want to give people too much because I want them to have to go buy the movie or watch it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if it'll ever happen. They're trying talking to me about it, but we'll see. All right, I'm thinking. I always think about your mom. She's always in her prayers. But, 
appreciate you, Pat. Uh, yeah, she's doing pretty good. 97, her next birthday. So wow. She's wow. still hanging in there. That's she's awesome. up and then she's down, you know. Yeah, that I is. I know, Pat. Hell, I may be around then, too. You never know. Well, if you are, can you imagine? That's crazy. Well, we may have cut a movie on longevity. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. She might t- be in it with me, but I mean, she's probably 120 years old with him. Yeah. Oh, I love it. That's how we end in a Mississippi Minute. Been with the great David Briggs. He's, uh, you just, I uh, appreciate him spending a Mississippi Minute with me. Dave O, you're the best partner. Uh, congratulations, blessings. All right. Thank you, Steve. I enjoy I'm Steve Azar. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them, where you can take your sweet time. all the way back in 1989, my wife and I newly married, and I was working on making my mark on the music business. We wanted to build a house. There was only one bank that helped us do that. And while we were trying to find our way around, our friends at Guarantee Bank started on the journey with us and have been there ever since. They were always my connection back home when we lived in Music City. They believed in me. So when you need a financial institution to believe in you, give my family at Guarantee Bank a chance. With humble beginnings all the way back to 1943, Guarantee Bank has grown from offering basic banking services and products to serving customers with a comprehensive, complete line of expertise and products only expected at much larger institutions. They are proud to be your local big-time bank. Please visit one of their 17 locations and tell them Steve Azar sent you. Guarantee Bank, member FDIC. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.